0: Hi, uh, you're listening to Beyond the Filter, a podcast a, about uh, digital art, new media, and video games. Today, I'm here talking with Darius Kazemi. Hi, Darius. Hey. Um, so, Darius, on his website, it says, I make bots and generators and other weird internet stuff, um, and also, I know of you through video game stuff, which you used to do more of, Yeah. Uh, and then you wrote a piece slash talk called Fuck Video Games, um, (laughs) uh, which we can talk about. But um, I guess uh, you're also my first guest uh, on here who actually lives in Portland, which is kind of funny.
1: I guess Portland is kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, But yeah, so uh, can you talk a little bit um, about your background um, and how you got into the stuff that you're into now and sort of the the route that you took.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess, I guess my, to describe my background, I might have to go back to at least when I was in like a kid and I was doing, I was just always, I was one of those kids who was I was fortunate enough to be around computers and I found them fascinating and so I was you know by the time I was like nine or ten years old I was programming very simple like choose your own adventure games in Q Basic and that kind of thing so you know just like just a text prompt and just you know uh like like little games about the the kids in my fifth grade class and that kind of thing um and um uh, and you know I, I kept at programming as like a as like a, a hobby and I took some programming classes in high school but um I never expected uh uh to do that kind of thing in particular as a as a job like I didn't go to college for for computer programming um uh, I actually went for um electrical engineering uh, when I was in high school I was really into I mean, I still am uh, really into music and like synthesizers and and amplifiers and effects and things like that. And so uh, I wanted to be a um, a digital signal processing engineer. Like I wanted to work with audio electronics. And so when I was in high school, I was building amplifiers and effects and I built a drum machine and uh, uh, a bunch of other stuff just from scratch. Uh, And and so that was like my big technical interest uh, in high school. Uh, and then, and but I was also building other weird stuff too. like I uh, like I remember when I, I discovered because I was building my own drum machine, I discovered that I could uh, route the the um, the, the digital uh, like the outs, like basically do feedback, but digitally. So I would I would route some of the address buses back, the data buses back into the address buses and like cause. The samples to skip and stutter and that sort of thing on the drum machine, Um, and uh, and so I was I I was definitely like playing around with that sort of thing and I built I built a thing once that used a voice synthesizer to call uh, Papa John's and order pizza on Fridays (laughs) for my lab. Um, That's like um, one of
0: those um, jukebox online internet jukebox things except cooler, like the, the (laughs) the Arnold Schwarzenegger thing you know where people would call oh yeah yeah. pizza places and try and order through kindergarten cop samples
1: (laughs) yeah and um uh and so that was like um uh that was that was high school for me so i went to school for for electrical engineering and i did get a degree in that but while i was in school there was also a, a game development club there and I had been interested in video games since I was a kid, too. It was, like, my, probably my main hobby besides reading was, was playing video games. And, um, uh, and in high school, I actually ran a, a review website called ClassicGames.org. And uh, me and my friend Kevin uh, started that website. and we that, would sounds, just re-
0: that sounds very official. I think at that time, <laughs> I might have even read that website, but if I, like, looked at it, I would have been like, oh this is, this is very official cuz it's yeah, we classic were,
1: games. Yeah, we were We were really excited to get the classicgames.org yeah. uh <laughs> domain. Um, <laughs> and um uh, and it was and that was a really fun project too. Like I was it, this was this would have been in 1990 uh, no, we started the website in 2000 or 1999. And um so I was I was in high school, almost graduated at that point and um uh, and this was like a nostalgia website for, but we were like, we were like, you know, sixteen-year-olds being nostalgic for games that we played when we were eleven.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, like, uh, me and my brother both collected eight-bit uh, uh, NES n- Nintendo like games when I was like, I think I was like thirteen, and he was like. i was like 12 and he was like 15 or something and he even had a website like we went online and during that time there were a lot of like uh retro nintendo and retro other stuff too because it wasn't like you know quote-unquote retro wasn't really mainstream yet but yeah um, there were a lot of communities and yeah I, i guess for 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 the nintendo thing it was like um it was because uh we, you know we never owned a well we owned a nintendo but we didn't get one until like 1994 or something um but um it is f- like it says something about games that like you know you have to make a classic games website for things that came out 5 years ago but <laughs> but that's 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 how games are like people forget about stuff so quickly
1: yeah and so we um uh and so we covered we we limited it strictly to DOS shareware, that was like our, like like that was what we wanted to talk about. Was DOS shareware games, not the full versions of the games, you know? Because the full versions of the games we probably didn't play anyway. You know, we were always just just downloading stuff from BBSs and getting, uh, or we would get those catalogs in the mail where you uh, you could buy like the, like so the
0: Apogee catalog. Uh,
1: yeah, although I never was cool enough to get the Apogee catalog. I think the one I, I had that one. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I had like a big third-party one. Uh, I want to say, uh, I looked it up years ago, and I forget the name of it now. It was like the software something, not catalog, but it was. Uh, I bet uh, there
0: was some weird stuff on there, though. There was. Yeah, it was. So it, you
1: know, at, sort of at the front, they had all the stuff from like Apogee and and Epic and and ID. But then as you got like towards the back, um, <laughs> you you started to see some of like. You know, like your Bible simulator stuff and things like that. Um, and And we had a lot of love for uh, for all that stuff, from like the very polished you know stuff like Doom um, all the way to random Bible simulator. Um, uh, and so and so we did DOS shareware games and uh, uh, and also it was my first, so it was my first experience doing public writing on the internet. Um, writing these reviews was really the first time other than like posting to Usenet newsgroups, um, it was the first time I'd ever really done any kind of like uh, writing to speak of on the web um, and I gotta say, going back and you know, the, the site's been down forever but it's on the internet archive and going back and reading some of my stuff, I'm like oh, this is definitely written by a teenager but it's not that embarrassing, I actually like some of the stuff that I wrote there and, some of, and I still make myself laugh uh, uh, at times um but uh but there was definitely like we definitely liked some of the weird games um um on there and we and we made sure to publish both a list of like highest rated games because we had like a numerical ranking of course uh but we also had our lowest rated games too and those were very popular as well um it was also my first time interacting with professional game developers um i cuz we would occasionally contact the author uh like we contacted um David Gray, who wrote uh, the uh, David P. Gray, who wrote the Hugo's House of Horror games. Oh, okay. Uh, and so we published an interview with him.
0: Um, a lot of those people probably haven't been interviewed very much at all.
1: No, oh, yeah, that that interview is one of the only existing interviews with uh, with him. Uh, and then there was this guy, which was uh, it was amazing. It's this guy um, Shannon Lorat, who we interviewed him because he made a. Our, our lowest rated game ever, or at least at the time, it was called um, Alien Worlds, uh, and, and it was clearly written by him when he was like 12 years old, and, or 13, and we contacted him when he was in his early 20s, and he was like, yeah, wow, I can't believe you found this game, and like, I did write it when I was 12, and uh, thanks for interviewing me about it. Uh and but but it was funny because when we contacted him, he was actually already internet famous because he ran a BME zine. I don't know if you're familiar with BME zine. It's it was like the was, maybe still is the big um body modification website. Like like <laughs> for, for people who like, you know, get forked tongues and like, you know, embed stuff in their face and things like that. Like like major sort of surgical body modification. So he's like a he's like a a celebrity in that community but when he was 12 he made this really bad game called Alien Worlds and someone
0: re- someone should should make a list of all the people who either their careers started out in games and then they went on to do something completely different or they like did it when they were young and then they you know are popular or famous in a completely different like yeah. realm or community cuz there's a lot of people like that
1: yeah and so um but so classicgames.org was like a fun interesting experience and that was also during a time on the internet in 1999 where we would get like 10 cents every time someone clicked on a banner and you know 1 cent every 10 people who looked at a banner or something like that so you know we did we had very modest traffic but we ended up making something like you know I don't know 50 60 bucks a month off of it which for a couple of 16 year olds in 1999 was like you know at least I had like enough money to like buy a new video game once a month you know yeah that would
0: have been that would have been mind-blowing to me to even just make any money off the internet at you know at that time
1: yeah yeah um uh, but so I did that and then in in college I was going there for electrical engineering but I um We had this was at uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester Massachusetts and there was a game development club there and the club was interesting to me because I liked video games and I'd always wanted to to make them Um, and uh, and uh, and so I joined this club and I got really into it I was actually I started out doing more electronic stuff. So I was building like little displays and like joysticks and stuff like that Uh, But then I started getting into you know, I started programming games for the Game Boy Advance, which was actually like a contemporary console um at the time. Um and I never finished anything, but it was just fun to get the even just be able to get a sprite to move around um on the screen. Uh and then when I was nineteen, um I started reading Game Developer magazine and Game Developer Magazine Does, does that still exist? No, they went out of they, they 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 discontinued the magazine like last year, I think. Okay. Um but uh, Game Developer, uh, I, I would read that, and I, was, I, I would devour it. In fact, I think at the time, it might have... I forget. This, this would have been in 2002, or this, this would have been late 2002. I'm not 100% sure, but I know at least in the first couple of years I started reading it, that was when I first knew who John Blow was because he was writing a column. Like he, was a, he was kind of a well-known columnist for Game Developer Magazine writing their technology column. John Blow,
0: uh, of course, yeah, everyone's favorite designer of *Braid* and *The Witness*. Um, exactly, exactly. Everyone, so that's... everyone's favorite uh, curmudgeon, or, or something. I don't even know if curmudgeon is accurate, but
1: yeah. And so, <laughs> and so, and and you know, because capitalism, uh, *Game Developer* magazine was owned uh, by the same company that runs the Game Developers Conference. Uh and so you know I bought a subscription to the magazine and then because I bought a subscription to that I got you know advertising for the conference and I was like oh this seems kind of interesting I I would I kind of like want to go to this and I asked my I asked my parents about it cuz you know I was like 19 and and I was like it's professional development I could go and like you know learn you know job tech stuff and they were like uh, they you know thankfully you know we we had the money and my my dad was like yeah professional development great so uh, he paid to uh, to have me for me to like fly out there and get a ticket and stuff which is not which That's is expensive. It's, it's extremely expensive so he was definitely like well you know this is an investment in your future i've um,
0: never paid for a pass uh, at the game developers conference yeah i've always gotten it through something
1: yeah, I've uh when I didn't get it through my dad, I got it through work or because I was speaking. Yeah. yeah. Um and uh and so yeah, so I went to GDC in 2003 and that was like a life-changing experience for me. I met a lot of people, a lot of people who like I don't agree with or talk to very much anymore. <laughs> um but at the time, I mean, and and you know, they're they're good, they're good folks and um uh, you know, we've just sort of like diverged in sort of both aesthetic and political opinions uh, in a, years. A, you know,
0: yeah, that was a really weird era for
1: games. Like um... it, w- it was. Oh, I could I could talk at length about what it was like at the time, especially in two thousand three, because two thousand because nineteen ninety nine, two thousand two thousand one was when all of the like small to mid sized Independent game developers were shutting down. Mm-hmm. Like Looking Glass closed down, and I think two, the most famous 2001.
0: Yeah, the most famous one is like Ion Storm.
1: Right, Ion and Ion Storm was around until 2003, but then shut down. I think in 2003 or 2000. Oh,
0: I think the I think the Dallas office shut down earlier. Oh,
1: Dallas Dallas shut down earlier. Yeah, Austin stuck around until like 2003 to release um, uh, Deus Ex Two. Right, um, uh, but um,
0: because that's something that I would have been familiar with at the time, like the whole Ion Storm thing, because it was all over the place. Like, right, because like it was, was John running. Romero's, yeah. like
1: you know, big white whale thing. Um, yeah, and so, but everything was shutting down. I mean, you know, one of the we might talk about this. One of the projects that I did was uh, a book for Boss Fight Books on the game Jagged Alliance Two by Sirtech Games, and uh, Sirtech shut down in two thousand one uh, or two thousand as well. Uh, Looking Glass, Ion Storm, uh, and a bunch of other studios, like like really, you know, well-known sort of big-name studios uh, it, that were sort of the independent ones not owned by publishers, um, were either shut down or purchased. Like, that was around the time that Maxis was bought by EA, um, uh, along with their, you know, Sims title and SimCity and all that stuff. Uh, and so... Uh, And it was a really bad time for innovation because digital distribution hadn't really taken off yet. Of course, it had existed for a long time. I mean, I ran a frickin' DOS shareware game website. We were doing digital distribution over BBSs, you know, in the 80s and 90s. Um, But but digital distribution as we know it, you know, Steam didn't exist until 2003, and third-party games were not sold on Steam until 2005. Um, so, uh, so it's really, um, uh, it was a really bad time for anything independent or innovative. The way I like to describe it is, uh, I believe it was in 2003, things were so bad that people were forced to call Beyond Good and Evil by Ubisoft, like, a really fascinating, uh, amazing game.
0: (laughs) People still love that game.
1: I I... know, but it doesn't hold up, and it's really... it's nostalgia for how fresh it felt at the time. And it only felt fresh at the time, I believe, because everything else was terrible. It was just horrible. Like, yeah. like in 2003-2004, the only game anybody ever really talked about was Deus Ex. Like, the first Deus Ex. Because that was, like, the only thing people could point to that was remotely, you know, interesting to anyone.
0: Yeah. Well, and at the time, I mean, in Japan, the game industry is doing pretty well. Like, you know, there's the Metal Gear Solid games and Oh yeah, they and they would talk about stuff.
1: Japanese games and stuff, but but at least in two thousand three there was no Japanese presence at GDC. Yeah. Um at all.
0: Well GDC hadn't become like a, a centralized, as much of a centralized event maybe as it's considered now. I yeah, don't know if it, it is was...
1: considered that it was uh, uh it was 10,000 people in 2003 so it was a pretty big event but it's like 20,000 now so it's like or or somewhere in that ballpark actually no no i'm sorry it was like 5,000 or 6,000 people back then yeah so it was it was a much smaller event although it was still very very large um but uh but yeah it, yeah so so yeah 2003 was a weird time for games uh and there were two things that really stood out to me when I went to I guess three things that really stood out to me when I went to to GDC that year. So I was nineteen and very impressionable uh, and very excited to be there and meet people and um, and I met some great people. they are amazing people who go to GDC every year. they still do. Um, uh, and I was just impressed with the sort of caliber and quality of thinkers that I ran into, like everyone. Was interested in pushing forward the state of the art. Uh, it was it was it was exciting for me, uh, and what was especially exciting was the experimental gameplay uh, workshop at and it was called the workshop back then. It was it, now it's called the sessions, I think. But, um, uh, and and that was something where they showed what would be today considered like indie games, um, or small experiments. So they would show like, oh, here's. A build of a game that we never released but it had this feature that didn't make the cut but we thought it was an interesting feature so we're gonna show you now um, uh, so they would they would show stuff like that or they would or they would find um, weird games from you know Japan that hadn't been localized yet and then show um, you know this has this interesting mechanic like check this out um, and that was that was really incredible especially because you know indie game like like nowadays you can like find that stuff every single day you just pick your gaming blog of choice and you know there'll be trailers for things claiming to be innovative or whatever um but we were kind of starved for content and news back then so it was really um uh i don't know it was just uh it was, it was, it was very, um, inspiring. It was extremely inspiring. And, uh, and the most inspiring thing of all was part of the experimental gameplay workshop was they showed the results of the Indie Game Jam. Uh, that year, I believe, was the second or the second ever Indie Game Jam, um, and the year that I went, uh, they had a, um, or in 2003, they were showing off this shadow casting technology. It was almost like a proto-Kinect type thing, but imagine, uh, imagine a projector, and you stand in front of the projector, and of course you're standing in front of the projector so your shadow gets cast on the screen. Um, but it detects, it does edge detection on the shadow, and so it can tell, you know, where your shadow is on the screen and so that was how you would interact in a kind of like you know connect gestural style way with mm. the world um uh but uh, but this was also my introduction to the concept of game jams uh, in fact they were at the time they were still only the, the only people doing game jams game jams were not a thing until the indie game jam did it uh, and it was founded by uh Sean Barrett and uh Chris Hecker the first
0: Sean Barrett, somebody he worked for, like Looking Glass. or right? Yeah,
1: Sean Sean worked for Looking Glass, um, and he's also um, been a sort of prolific consultant. Um, and I believe he worked at Rad Game Tools uh, on sort of like generic uh, game engine middleware type stuff. Um, and similar to, to to John Blow and also Chris Hecker, uh, he's been kind of like a thought leader, especially in sort of he's he's uh, again like John and Chris, one of these. Tech-focused programmer guys mm-hmm. who also has a strong design sense and strong opinions about design. Um, uh, and so, uh, so Sean and uh, and and Chris started the indie game jam. Uh, and I think 2002 was the first year. 3 was the second year. Um, and the shadow-casting stuff, like I don't know, it all kind of. Sucked, but you know, like game jam games, kind of suck, right? I mean, you know, you spend two days working on a game, but also at the time there was no such thing as Unity. You know, there were none of these. It was all custom code, and so to see these, the best programmers from the game industry, like and artists too, get together in a room and spend two days working with a custom engine to create um, playable games after forty eight hours, it was it was inconceivable. At the time, that you, yeah. could, that you could do that, just technically. Um, and uh, and so it was just exhilarating. And some of the stuff that came out of that was actually kind of cool. The the one 3D game that was made over the weekend was called it was by Casey Muratori who's with uh, uh, Molly Rocket. He does a lot of uh, YouTube streaming these days of like complex um, uh, uh, programming problems in game development. Uh, but he also worked on The Witness as well. Uh but I believe it was called Casey Muratori's Pro Owl and it was a takeoff on Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, but you're an owl and the way you play it is like, you know, you're shadow casting and you just like flap your arms like a bird, uh, to like fly. Uh but it was like this 3D game with tricks and like they, they stole a bunch of samples from the Tony Hawk games and stuff, and it was actually a really like funny parody. Um uh Uh, Type thing, which I just thought was was great, Uh, and so I became a huge fan of the Indie Game Jam. I just I just idolized both the event and all the guys, and I say guys because it was like a bunch (laughs) of guys, and then Robin Huneky. Yeah, Um, Robin Huneky for listeners, uh, probably most famous now as being the executive or the producer on um, Journey.
0: Yeah, she still uh, runs the experimental. She she's the one who runs the experimental gameplay. Uh, sessions now.
1: Yeah, and she was a grad student back then at um, uh, the University of Chicago in their uh, AI program, uh, actually. uh, The computer science uh, doing AI research. Um,
0: But you got involved with the the Game Jam stuff, didn't you? I did. I did.
1: So in 2004 I went went to GDC 2003, I went to GDC every year for 10 years after that. Um, uh, But in 2004 I was still a student and I went and I saw their their next game jam, which was based on the concept of what if we had a physics engine in a game, uh, which was a new concept at the time. I mean, people had done it before, but this was before... Like, the first major, major, major game to come out with, like, doing gameplay stuff with physics was Valve's uh, Half-Life 2, like, with the gravity gun. Like, that was, that was the first time really most gamers had seen... Um, you know, physics puzzles. Um,
0: and that but, game came out in like 2004, didn't it?
1: Uh, it was either late 2004 or 2005. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I think it was 05 because that was the whole reason why people had to install Steam. Like that was yeah. the, that was the Trojan horse for getting Steam on people's computer. If you wanted to play Half-Life, you had to install this new program called Steam, which no one really wanted to. Um, and so, um, uh, but in 2004, so they, they were they had a, a, a Otman Binstock actually, who at the time was living in Japan. I don't know where he's what he's up to these days, but he was yet another one of these genius programmer guys. Um, and he had coded up for the previous year's uh, game jam a, a, a quick and dirty 2D engine, it was basically similar to what you might know as Box 2D today, which is what powers like Angry Birds, um, a, a rigid body. Physics engine, uh, and so they said, "Okay, what if we um, uh, what if we do something with a rigid body physics engine?" Uh, uh, and so they played around with a bunch of different concepts, and uh, and there was one concept that I loved, which was called um, uh, uh, Hopper Quest, and it was just this it was this simple programmer art game with 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 rectangles and circles. And uh, uh, and it was made by uh, Chris Hecker and also um, Austin Grossman. Um, Austin Grossman did a bunch of writing on um, uh, on on uh, various games, including, I believe, Deus Ex. Um, but he wasn't the main writer. That was Sheldon Picati. Uh, and then uh, and he's 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 written for a ton of different games. Sort of the usual game writer, like you know you freelance around and do a little bit here and a little bit there. Uh, and then, uh, and he used to work at. Look, he's an ex Looking Glass guy as well. Um, uh, these days, he's more of a regular author, like books and stuff. He had a pretty popular book called "Soon I Will Be Invincible," which is like a like a parody superhero type novel thing. Anyway, uh, Austin and Chris did this game Hopper Quest, and it was just this little physics sandbox thing. But I just fell in love with it. It was one of these games where you have to like. Um, uh, it's a little bit like Quop. Uh, like Bennett Foddy's QWAP um, where... the,
0: the, the popular online it's like popular on 4chan and stuff, where you like uh, control each limb with a different key.
1: Yeah exactly and this wasn't a full person's uh, body like it is in coif, so it didn't have quite that level of, of humor but, um, but it was like a little sort of creature with a couple of different limbs that you independently controlled um, and I just loved sort of locomoting around the environment with this little dude, or I guess it 's not really a dude it 's just the hopper yeah i should i shouldn 't gender the hopper uh, <laughs> anyway um, uh, so I just fell in love with that and um uh, and and when they released all the games uh, online, that was one of the other things that they did. Was which was also kind of revolutionary. Was they would release the the games uh, uh, afterwards, so people could download them and play them. And uh, and I was just overcome. And I had to, and, I, and when I was sitting at home, I decided to make a fan page for one of these for Hopper Quest, which is just this shitty little one-off weekend game. And so I made a fan page, and I like included tips and tricks for how you might play Hopper Quest. Uh, and I and I made my own levels for it and posted those levels, um, and uh, and then I also created a, a, a fake clan page, like a Quake clan, but for but for HopperQuest, uh, and I and I and I wrote it in the sort of parodic style. I wrote it like a like I was an excited you know ten year old or whatever, <laughs> um, uh, with bad web design skills, and uh, and I and I sent it to Robin Huneky, and Robin thought it was really funny, and then sent it over to the rest of the Indie Game Jam folks, and that eventually resulted in them inviting me to be an intern at the 2005 Indie Game Jam. Um, And that was, like, a huge turning point for me. That was where I got to work with all my... Like, I got to work alongside people who I idolized um, for years. Um, uh, And I had... It was great. I got to be friends with a lot of these people. Some of them I'm still friends with uh, uh, to this day, um, and uh, and I was definitely starstruck. Uh, but uh, but but you know, it it was almost like I got access to this exclusive club. Like looking back on it now, and I and people were even kind of jealous of me that uh, you know it's like, oh man, you got in with 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 the cool kids crowd. Like how did you do that? And I was like, I don't know. I made a, I made it crappy, funny website, you know, but yeah, it was, so I guess I like, I kind of got lucky. Um,
0: a lot of that stuff is timing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, and so I, um, uh, and so, and, and so, yeah, I got to work alongside those people and they really like influenced they, their a lot of their thought influences me to this day. Like, for example, uh, you know, I make sort of internet art stuff right now, but, um, most of my projects, I only spend a few hours working on. You know, I'll, I'll get the idea and then I'll try and create it as fast as I can and just get it out there because to me, something that exists and is not perfect is better than something that, that I just keep on the shelf and never release. Uh, and that's directly indebted to the idea of game jams. Like, that is 100%, like, let's just sprint, you know, and, and get this thing done. As quickly as possible So it's out there in the world um, And I'm highly indebted To, to Chris and Sean and, uh, and all the Indie Game Jam people for, for encouraging That mode of Creative work In me
0: And that definitely Had a huge influence on what Quote unquote indie games Would, would end up becoming
1: Absolutely yeah, that that combined with the experimental gameplay workshop at GDC, which is—I mean—the lines blur because everyone who ran the EGW was also an indie game jam participant too. Um, so, uh, yeah, and so that that kind of stuff really both the both the game jam spirit and also just the EGW spirit, which was, um, which was very focused on innovative mechanics, um, as as like the sort of be all and all of of games future. Yeah, it,
0: it still kind of is.
1: Yeah, it's just less relevant now, but the, yeah. like like the, as an event. But but back then it was really like like that was, you know, you you showed something at the EGW and like that was, you know, you might as well have won an Oscar for indie games, right? Uh <laughs> Uh, or or maybe a Sundance award right like that's It's a, you know. it's a
0: yeah I guess the difference is it's a much smaller world so it is it like even in 2012 2011 when I got involved with stuff it was still like a much smaller world Yeah um now yeah. I, not so much
1: Yeah and it was even smaller you know in 03 04 or 05 so yeah Yeah it was it was It was an exciting time because everything sucked so much but also was getting better much rapidly in terms of just you know uh, in terms of just good games getting made. The games sucked in 2003. One of my main theories around that is just that um, the tooling hadn't quite, like we had fully transitioned to 3D by like 2001, 2002. There really weren't any 2D games you could buy in stores anymore. and uh, and the tooling hadn't really caught up yet. We didn't have stuff like Unity, where you could just like, you know, where where it's not that difficult to to throw together a three D game without that much pain. Um, it was a very painful process, uh, and it was and we were still trying to get our wrap our heads around just the production of all the art and that kind of thing. Um, and so it was it, it 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 was this weird point where the 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 raw processing power was there and gamers you know expected full 3D and all that sort of stuff but game developers hadn't really caught up yet things hadn't standardized i mean well, it was it wasn't even until 2003 really that the that that what is currently considered a game engine like your standard game engine was really um codified in the industry as like a best practice
0: yeah i think um Part of the the thing that made indie games more popular is just the industry becoming more standardized, more like austerity approach applied where everything is sort of like um, like each piece and part of a game is kind of um, like it's like it's like a factory kind of mindset and i feel like that set in around the mid 2000s yes and um i th- that opened the way for people to actually make smaller things because there wasn't really that many I- new ideas getting into like big budget games and it's still kind of that way <laughs> yeah there was
1: this there was this vacuum that needed filling uh whereas whereas i remember you know you could you could go to you know babbage's or something in the 90s and probably find something kind of weird and interesting um uh and that wasn't true in the late 90s like by the time 99 rolled around it was it's it was starting to look much more like a modern game stop you know just, just mm-hmm. shooty shoot this and that
0: yeah, I mean, I I was still conscious of like some of the you know the weirder stuff at that point, but it seemed like by you know the early to mid 2000s that had pretty much disappeared. Um,
1: yeah, it was a gradual but, process, but yeah.
0: But uh, so so you got involved with with game stuff. You also like had this like networking guide for GDC. <laughs> I, I, I remember seeing somebody that I know who like from a completely different context like linked it and said oh people should read this
1: um, <laughs> that feels like another lifetime like like I was another person back then but yeah yeah I wrote um, it was actually I started writing it before I got my first job in video games so like like 2003 2004 I went to GDC and I was still a student and then in 2005 I was almost going to graduate from college and I did the indie game jam and I was trying to get a job and I just couldn't I couldn't find a job anywhere. I got some interviews, but no one really wanted to hire me and I was feeling really dejected. And, um, while I was, uh, underemployed, I think I was working for my university at that time, but while I was underemployed and wishing I had a job, um, I was like, well, I have this blog because also blogging was a new thing back then too. Like it was, it was a fairly recent phenomenon. Um, and in 2000 early 2005 was when i started tiny subversions uh my blog at the time it was a blogspot blog i didn't have tinysubversions.com yet uh and i um i was uh, uh so i had this um uh
0: was, was the name t- Tiny Subversions, was, was that sort of influenced by the, the, the indie game jam kind of thing? Like, you
1: know, it, it wasn't actually, uh, uh, not consciously at least. Tiny Subversions was uh, just a two-word phrase from a, a, an essay that I had written for uh, an English class. Uh, <laughs> and I liked those two words together, so I pulled them out of context and made them the, the, the title of my blog.
0: Because it seems very in line with that sort of thinking.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I mean, it was definitely a, a,
1: a, a concept that was intriguing to me generally. I mean, I'm sure if you had mentioned it back then, I would have been like, oh, yeah, I guess it does kind of match up with that. Uh, but it, it wasn't conscious. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, game jams. I'm going to call it Tiny Subversions. Um so I so I had this blog lying around and I wanted to put stuff up on it and I was like well what am I good at? Oh everyone says I'm good at networking. So I will just write about how to net like how do I network? I will write a series of blog posts about it. And that was really the first like popular thing I had ever created on the internet. Um you know uh it's had in the last 10 years, it's I think it's had a cumulative, like, million views or something. For a while, it was being taught in, like, at game programs at universities. Um, wow. Sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I guess I stand by the basics of it, which is, you know, the basic thing is just, like, if you're, you know, if you want to network, like, don't be a dick. Your job is to, like, find people you think are genuinely interesting and make friends with them and, like, keep in touch. Like, that's mm-hmm. pretty much... But also that was, I think that was harder to do pre-social media like in 2005 we didn't have Twitter We uh, and LinkedIn was like brand new or was just about to come out and um, you know, Facebook was just brand new as well, So, uh, so you know, at, at the time I had a lot of I had a lot of stuff like, oh, write down everyone you know in a book and then like flip through the pages of those books, of the book and like, you know make sure to contact people you haven't talked to in a while, and that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, so that was, like, my first, like, successful, I guess, internet project thing uh, uh, to the point where I, I, I even had a, a publisher who who wanted to, like, transform it into a textbook for schools. And I was, like, I, I tried for, like, a couple months, and then I was, like, no, I can't. I can't do
0: this. So, uh, when did the, the tide turn with games, and uh, what sort of pushed you out of that? Because I know that you wrote that piece called Fuck Video Games, um, uh, which I like wrote a response to at the yeah. time. Um, and 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 you were involved in the uh, IGDA, and then you, you quit that, and you made a post about that. And But that was like in 2013. So what happened uh, to get you... So, what, what happened that kind of soured you on some of that stuff and what got you into what you're doing now?
1: Yeah, so it was roughly, so basically once I got my first job uh, in video games, which was at Turbine Games in Boston, I worked on Dungeons & Dragons Online and Lord of the Rings Online. Uh, it's actually in the news recently because the, both of those games got handed off to like the company that bought Turbine, which is Warner Brothers now. Warner Brothers is getting rid of those games, and they're handing it off to like a small studio now to to like sort of keep them on life support. And anyway, it's been interesting reconnecting with all my former coworkers because of that. But um, uh, but I worked on D and D Online, Lord of the Rings Online, uh, and then I just went uh, off and did my own consulting business for a few years. Uh, and that business was uh, for analytics in games. I mean people just take for granted now that that like you know when you play a, a, a mobile game they're probably recording what stuff you buy and sell and you know what basic choices you take and people know what percentage of players finish their game and that sort of thing. But um, no one had that at all until the early 2000's and even then it was a very sp- sparse thing and uh, and so, like the games, I would I believe I was the first person to be um, employed full time as a gameplay analytics person in the United States. Uh, and so I sort of took that and turned it into its own uh, consulting and software business. And we would we would go around to to different MMO developers and put analytics in their games, which was like a brand new concept for everyone. Um, and so I did that for a few years, and then the MMO market crashed in, like, 2008 when basically people decided that, oh, World of Warcraft was an aberration, not a repeatable success uh, crap. We should probably stop spending tens of millions of dollars making MMOs. Um, and uh, and then Facebook games were getting hot, so I worked on Facebook games for a little while. Uh, and then I... S- Started. So
0: you were you were sort of following the the waves.
1: Yeah, I was following the waves. I mean, that was especially if you work if you live in a place like Boston, which is not a primary city for game development, um you kind of have to follow the money. Yeah. Uh okay. otherwise there's no jobs for you. And so um so I worked on Facebook games for a while and then um uh, and then as I was working on Facebook games you know I was working in in analytics, so I was seeing the writing on the wall um, I was seeing that there were like you know the that the that we were incredibly dependent on what seemed to be a small number of gambling addicts um who would spend you know ten thousand dollars a month on the game, and so the game was maybe pulling in a hundred grand a month, but most of that was from like ten or twelve people um who wanted to pay tens of thousands of dollars a month for for fake zoo animals? <laughs> um, and Very felt,
0: strange business model.
1: Yeah, and and I was like, I have to. This is not sustainable. I have to get out of this. Uh, at the and
0: same, also, not really ethical. Either. No,
1: no, no, not uh, sort of not ethically sustainable for me for sure. And so, um, at the same time that all that was happening, uh, this was in 2010. Um, I uh, um, I took a... Uh, I, the first uh, HTML5 game engines were coming out. I had played around... So, by the way, also all this time while I was working at game companies, I was also working on my own little indie game experiments, but I never managed to ship anything. I just had a bunch of, you know, 10% finished but never... You know, 10% started but never finished projects just sitting in a projects folder. Um, and I was working with whatever engine was hot at the time, so, you know, torque engine for a while, and then, uh, then I tried making stuff in Flash for a while, and I just never, nothing ever clicked for me. <coughs> um, but the the first HTML5 game engine started coming out in 2010, and it was still a very experimental technology, but... Um, uh, but in 2010, this this engine came out. It was called um, Akihabara, uh, like the like the 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 place in Tokyo, um, and it could do like sort of NES level games, um, and uh, and I started playing around with it, and uh, it was my first time doing JavaScript really. Uh, so any kind of browser web browser programming, I had you know poked at it before, but never really dived, dived in and um, uh, and so that was my first time working on an open source project and I ended up writing all the documentation for the game engine uh, and also ended up rewriting a fair amount of the game engine as well. Um, it was really my first time doing a big um, programming project and, and the work that I did in that uh, I ended up getting a job offer from a company in Boston that was a JavaScript developer but they wanted to start doing games type work and they knew I was local and had experience and you know there were probably only like 20 people worldwide who could claim experience in HTML5 game development in 2010 so so they hired me on to do games work uh, there so I was sort of like the games industry guy coming into a web development company to sort of teach them things about game development and in turn and they taught me things about web development. And I ended up working there for three Sorry, years, you, and over could time...
0: You, could you repeat that, that? In turn, they taught you things about web development? Is that yeah, what you said?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, uh, you know, I taught them things about game development, and in turn, they taught me things about web development. Okay, cool. And And over time... Um, I started doing less and less game stuff and more and more just general web stuff, and, and by, by which I mean in terms of just creative, my, my creative hobbies. Um, uh, I discovered that the web browser was a really great way to, to have people interact with stuff. Um, I love that you didn't have to download anything. It was just um, people could just go to a website and experience an interactive thing. And to me, it was just really um, ripe for creative exploration. Um, uh, you know, I would, there were, I, I sort of fell in love with a number of sort of, uh, like, word generation technologies, like like natural language processing type stuff, um, playing with text, uh, but also just playing with, uh, you know, for a while I was really uh, interested in the idea of, you know, instead of having, like, a Flash game that just sits in a frame on your web browser, um, you know, the game is now part of the whole browser experience, so what if, what if your, your game didn't just sit in a frame? What if it broke the frame and started messing with other things in, on the web page? Um, and, uh, you know, I don't think I ended up doing too much with that, but, but the idea of, like, hooking into the fundamental... Um, fundamentally what's going on with the web browser and just messing with that experience was was fascinating to me and that was really my entry into you know what i would broadly call internet art um now
0: um so you were also involved um like in the uh i mentioned the uh the ig oh and the yes cover, or, and then you wrote like Fuck video games so That's what, right. like, what brought you to that uh what or what brought you to like um <laughs> Being like, okay, I'm I'm not going to go to GDC anymore. I'm not I'm not doing this anymore. You know, I'm gonna go off and do my internet art thing now.
1: Yeah. So IGDA um, is almost kind of a side thing to this story. I was on the board of directors for that from uh, 2010 to, to 2013 uh, or 2012. I forget, but it was three. It was like three years, starting 2010 um, or, or 2009, and. Uh, <coughs> And I ended up, um, you know, I learned a lot. I was, I was young at the time. Uh, I learned a lot about being on the board of an international uh, trade association thing. Uh, uh, I, I have a lot I could say, but suffice to say, it did sour me a little bit. Uh, the thing that soured me most on was um, I realized that I was getting a false sense of what the game industry was like by going to game industry events. Uh, because, mm-hmm. because that was all people who self-selected to go to those events, right? It was, of course, you know, most of the people, excuse me, of course most of the people who go to GDC are excited about moving the industry forward because they wouldn't be at GDC if they weren't, unless they were trying to sell something. Yeah. Um, but you go to a game studio and you talk to your rank-and-file developer, and a lot of the times it's just, you know, it's just some dude who, like, wants to make a, an awesome gun and then go home. You know, like, that's... Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's a job. It's a job and, like, it's a kind of an interesting job, but it's still like, you know, well, we're going to, you know, we're going we're gonna to put bigger boobs on the love interest this time around because that seemed to sell last year. You know, and it's not even like that's not even like the out of touch corporate executives. That's like your rank and file designers coming up with those decisions.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: so uh, so that's, you know, so that was sort of disillusioning to me. Um, and at the same time, I had grown frustrated with the fact that. <coughs> excuse me. I had grown frustrated with the fact that um, you know, I had never finished any of these indie games that I had made, but also I was enamored of the fact that, like all this web stuff that I was building was was feeling really good to me. I was building stuff that I liked, and also other people liked it. Um, and uh, uh, and I, I had and I was also reading deep in a lot of like media theory stuff at the time, too. Um, and and I was just like, well, maybe video games isn't my medium. Like, like what, what, you know? And then and then I started thinking about it, and that was just that just got me to this place of like, yeah, fuck video games. Maybe it's not necessarily um, uh, the medium of most of the people that I know who struggle with it. You know, I mean, clearly it works for for some people. You know, yeah. but maybe it doesn't work for everyone, and maybe that's okay. Um,
0: the the idea of video games in in itself is kind of a construction. We assume that something is a video game because of some agreed upon rules, but it's really just another piece of software.
1: Exactly, it is it is just all software because it's like you know is uh uh you know is Mist a video game? Well, it is because it was sold as one, but you know it's also but also it was just created in. In HyperCard, and HyperCard, like most stuff created in HyperCard, is not considered a video game. Uh, it's considered. It's considered. It's more like uh, you know, it was HyperCard in the nineties was like Twine today, right? It's like it's like uh, you know, point and click, kind of uh, manipulate a hypertext document type thing, um, and uh, and so, you know, yeah. What? But
0: there was also the. Um... Sorry, continue. No, no. Good,
1: okay, yeah, I mean it's just so what made Mist a video game, but um, you know, something else in HyperCard, not a video game. I guess Mist had really fa- fancy 3D rendering and people see 3D rendering and they think video games. Uh. Yeah,
0: the the 3D thing was really big at that time. It was good timing, I think. Um I um I mean there was also the uh there was also the I think around that time, like late 2000s, early early mid, early like 2010, 2011, 2012, you have a lot of more people who are kind of either academics or game people, ex-game industry people or people still working in the industry, like theorists, and a lot of people being like, you know, we need to improve video games. They need to branch out artistically. Like all this stuff, uh, you know, the, the medium needs to move forward. And um, there's all these pressures to kind of integrate all this stuff that was uh, before and and carry all this baggage uh, that comes from video games, that they have to be action-oriented or they have to work a certain way or you have to interact with them in a certain way. Um, and a lot of those people um, aren't necessarily always open to things that are actually expanding that medium because they're not necessarily considered video games. Right. They're
1: invested in, they're still invested in that concept. It's interesting you mentioned the timeline because, yeah, people were saying that in 2010, but, you know, also Chris Crawford, who founded the Game Developers Conference, was saying that in 1988. Yeah. Like, like it's, you know, like you can go back and read some of the stuff that Chris wrote in the 80s and he's like, games don't just have to be about shooting. They could be about, like, conversations between people and, like, you know, uh rich simulations and you know and this and this and that i mean it's it's not 100% like a hundred percent like um like a mod doesn't read a hundred percent modern but it's the, still the same idea you know and it's well, essentially the same arguments being being made back then too
0: yeah well and now like in the 90s there were like there was cd rom software there was interactive mm-hmm. software that that isn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily considered games right. um and and now we have like vr stuff you know yeah that that's not, you know, like, different people who are coming from a more, like, arts background are getting involved with that, like they did with the CD-ROM stuff, and that's not necessarily considered games either. Right. Um, But it it is, like, part of the same thing, and they don't necessarily have to be the same thing. Like, they don't... Like, I think some people want it to come all under the umbrella of games because um, they want games' cultural image to be improved. Um, But but that that's the problem that i feel like it's it's always an image thing like because software making software on the internet or making any kind of software any kind of like digital art um there are always intersections between different media into each other and it the 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 barriers are much more hazy than they are with other mediums um and so, p- the, so the barriers like um are kind of artificial like we we invent them and we put a lot of stock in in them um and i don't know i mean that's part of the theme of this podcast is getting beyond that right <laughs> um but um but yeah i think like i mean that's been my frustrating thing i'm i've kind of sort of stuck around in games in spite of saying that i'm leaving it um just because this idea that you have to pledge yourself to forwarding the medium and do all these incredibly self-destructive things like work in the industry and work overtime and, you know, work right. insane hours and and deal with, like, horribly entitled fans, like, <laughs> and, like, you know, just feed all this stuff, like, uh, all those expectations are there. It's kind of like a weird self-flagellating thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, um, I would. I mean, you know, yeah. if I had a game idea and I thought it was best suited to a game, I would make a game. Like, I, I haven't, uh, you know, I haven't, I said fuck video games and I haven't done much in games since. But, you know, I made a game last year for the, for the, for uh, uh, Stephen Colbert and it was a Bernie Sanders like funny parody game thing. And it was, you know, it was contract work. But like, you know, I'm not going to not make. Games. I'm not allergic to it or anything, um, uh, but uh, but you know it's not my it's not like my default. I don't like my thought process used to be. Oh, I just read this fascinating book on architecture. How can I put that in a game?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you're always trying to find ways to. Um... I mean, there's there's one aspect which is like translation, and obviously, like any kind of medium that you're working in, you need to translate the idea in a way that works. But in another way, it's like it's always like I see this a lot where people have an idea, they have an inspiration from another piece of media or whatever, and they're like, "How do I make this into a game mechanic?" And I think that is the moment most of the time where where they've lost, yeah. like where 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 it's it's like you sh- you might as well give up because because like it's it's gonna reduce it's it's just gonna become it's the same narrative it's it's gonna become the same thing it's just you're using a different like you're dressing it up with a different idea, but it's still you're still playing out the same sort of fantasies or ideas and I think that's the thing that's been the hardest to uh to get people to wrap their brains around who are involved in games that how invested people are in this particular idea. Um, to just give some of that up or at least admit that that exists, you know um, and I don't know, that's been one of my biggest points of frustration, it's not just like, you know, I read like uh, Bjork talking about video games and saying like you know, why are video games so violent like I, I never understand that world and stuff and I I agree with that but it's not just about violence for me it's also, it's it's about like this sort of empower, empowered narrative and the sort of uh, forms and progressions that things are supposed to take yeah um and like they never i mean and there's there's stuff that that d- doesn't fit into that format, but like we limit ourselves so much uh by trying to to draw those like artificial barriers between things, but I guess those artificial barriers are what cause people to um become financially successful so uh there's that kind of weird conflict there
1: yeah and i mean barriers can be helpful at times too um i don't know about the kind of barriers that we're talking about in particular but it does it can help to like
0: well i, I mean barriers between video games and other like oh yeah bots or things that you do like right. the, the the twitter bots or the pieces of digital media like like i mean twitter is a game like it's it's entirely designed it's 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 false kind of manufactured interactions with it. Not it's it's a somebody had an idea of uh, of what um, kind of experience that they wanted to make, and they made it, and we're all sort of participating in it. But I think because it's become so normalized, we don't see it as actually it's just somebody's idea right. of how to interact with each other. Right, and that's we that's like. Be- we that's how get, tech works. Yeah,
1: we definitely get scored on everything we say on Twitter. You know, that's what those like faves and and retweets are about. Uh, and
0: it's a, it's a totally gamified idea of reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But, but I think I think we don't understand how much we are these things that we're participating in our games, and even people in the tech world have this kind of sense of like. Um, <laughs> Moral superiority or like invulnerability or something where they believe that they have chosen the objectively best ideas. And, right. and, and just because something has gotten popular or whatever, or it's become more universal. Um, and uh, th- there are very few people out there who are willing to, who are involved with that, who are willing to accept the idea that this is all just somebody's idea and and they're carrying all their sort of cultural uh, and, and other baggage into these ideas. Right.
1: Well, and, and I, mean, I mean, that's just a general human problem as well, not just in, uh, like I think about, you know, uh, like to use a classic example, money, right? And currency and, uh, you know, uh, interest, right? Like, well, of course money, when you put it in a bank, earns interest. Why? Uh, because we decided that that's what it does, you know. Like, and we had reasons for deciding that. But just like the Twitter, you know, engineers and designers had reasons for designing what, uh, you know, doing what they did too. But it's still, you know, we there have been, you know, you can just like you can find social networks that don't operate like Twitter. You can you can look at the historical record and find money with things that have essentially reverse interest, where you know if you store money somewhere, it, it loses value. Over time, right?
0: I, get, I I guess the difference that I perceive with the internet is at least things for a while were theoretically on the same level. Like you could type in twitter.com and you would get that experience, but then you might type in twitting.com or something (laughs) like that. And it could just be like some like fucked up version of Twitter. Right. You know, and like that still exists to some extent. I mean, that's like the whole thing with net neutrality though. But like we, you know, we theoretically have net neutrality, but we don't actually anyway because everyone's attentions are like funneled towards uh facebook or twitter or whatever you know youtube all those places um but um I've, you know as somebody who grew up going on the computer and like designing websites and and everything um i mean i didn't do anything super intensive but um like it's it's obvious to me how much this is just another program this is just another thing that somebody created because almost anyone can do it um And that's what kind of makes it even stranger to say, like, for me to say, like, why should we accept this one thing but not accept these other ideas? um, If, theoretically, someone could make this idea, someone, you know, a random person could make this other idea um, and could actually implement it. Like, you can't make your own... I mean, people have tried to make their own currency. They've tried to do Bitcoin and stuff. But, like, uh, you can't easily make your own currency and and do a lot of that stuff but you can make your own social media platform or whatever um, and I, I guess that that's the difference and that kind of ex- exposes to me how how much we sort of enter into these kind of collective fantasies without really knowing that we're doing that
1: right yeah yeah that's that's I think that's a good point um, I mean and so much of it has to do with with essentially just popularity and network effects. You know, a social network is not necessarily of use to me unless there's people who I want to talk to on it. Um, or at least people who I want to be able to see my stuff on it. Um and so you do end up with these I mean, I mean, they're they're systems, you know, just like in games. There, there are positive feedback loops where, well, Twitter has a lot of people on it, so it's going to keep having a lot of people on it because people want to go where the people are.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess we can segue from talking about that into talking about your Twitter bots um, and and that, that being a realm that you got really involved in um, now. I, I find a lot of that stuff interesting because it is trying... I, th- I I see it as trying to do some of the stuff that you know quote unquote net art did in the past. It is taking this like corporatized uh, internet experience and trying to uh, skew it or like p- introduce something bizarre and kind of uh, unpredictable or un you know like that kind of goes against. What the intention of this platform was?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of it is just about like weird, uh, you know. To at the risk of uh, you know using a played-out term, uh, like keeping the internet weird, you know, like just like uh, I remember, I remember being in being 13 years old and being on the internet for the first time, really, like the World Wide Web for the first time. And just how how weird and strange it was, and like it was very you know I remember like reading reptilian conspiracy theory websites, you know. When uh, I, that it, st-
0: that stuff has become even more mainstream, honestly. Yeah,
1: yeah, but and at the time it was just like, holy crap, what is this? This is so strange. Uh, yeah. And uh, and I so you know I would read that kind of stuff, and there was all this 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 just weird amazing stuff out there. And, uh, and and also, you would experience, you know, you would, you would have things like spam, right? Spam mail. Uh, and these days, we don't have as big a problem with spam as we did, you know, 10 or more years ago because we have better filters for the most part. Uh, but but back then I remember having to constantly delete lots and lots of spam. But sometimes the spam was beautiful and it was poetic and it was like this weird encounter. Um, uh, and sometimes I would just forward spam to my friends because I would get a particularly funny, uh, you know, word salad in the mail. Um, and and I, I just I just remember those feelings. And and a lot of this is a lot of what I do with bots is just trying to like recapture what I liked about the internet before where it was just... It was, yeah, it was just... It, you, it was this weird alien encounter. Um, and I specifically started making Twitter bots in particular because I thought Twitter was a great place to create... to confront people with alien entities. You know, it was, it was relatively easy to program a Twitter bot. Still is. Um, also, the 140 characters and just... Something about Twitter just flattens entities so that, um, you know, uh, the difference between, it's not like a video call where the difference between uh, a, a person and a bot is going to be readily apparent. Um, uh, I just like that it's a level playing field for all sorts of different actors. And so a, um, a, a bot that tweets, you know, uh, whenever it detects uh, an earthquake in the area of, Of you know, in the in the region of San Francisco Bay, um, might be just as important to somebody as uh, as you know their friend's Twitter account. But mechanically, they're the same thing on Twitter. You're still just following and reading and maybe interacting. Um, So that was that's what was really interesting to me about Twitter as a platform generally. And I was very specifically setting out to make. I read um, Ian Bogost, who's another one of these. Uh, theorist programmer slash theorist folks uh, also loosely affiliated with some of those indie game jam folks although he never attended an indie game jam to my knowledge um, uh, yeah I met him back when at my first or second gdc uh, and we' we've known each other for 10 years and 10 years later I was reading his philosophy book called alien phenomenology that he had written and that's what really got me to making Twitter bots was he had a provocation in there that was sort of a call to create alien entities, perhaps with software um, that did philosophical labor. Um, and, so, and so my first Twitter bots were, were definitely built as, like, my concept of them, and I don't know if I have that conception still, but my concept at the time was they were these, these never-ending philosophical laborers.
0: That's Interesting. I mean, we we all are sort of laborers, <laughs> you know, on social media. And yeah. Like, I, I, I spend – I think about, you know, I make money through Patreon and everything, and I, th- I think about, like, I'm not doing, you know, enough. Like, I'm not working on projects that really feel fulfilling enough. And then I think about, like, <laughs> I'm tweeting all the time, and that is, <laughs> like, a, a weird – it's supposed to be pleasure, but it has become a weird form of work.
1: Uh, yeah, I did just – I did just recently take a break from from Twitter and I hate to be that guy but it's kind of great. It's uh, like I mean it was definitely necessary for me. Like I'm not you know I I'm not prescribing it as something everything that everyone should do but um uh but I was fi- I, I don't know, I was just finding Twitter stressful so clearly not being on Twitter has been removed that stress from my life. Um, of course, you know I don't have a Patreon, so it's not like you know my my livelihood is not quite as tied to my internet presence. Um, but uh, uh, but yeah, it's been it's been liberating to not have to do that labor, and I've somewhat filled it in with other social networks, which is you know six of one, half dozen of the other. Uh, but uh, but it's also freed up a lot of time for me to just do other things too, like just hang out in a library and roam through the stacks and grab random books and that kind of thing, which is just a very relaxing activity for me in a way that being on Twitter is not.
0: Yeah. I, I guess, like, I feel, I feel both ways about it, because I, I feel like people both with um, the internet and video games, there's this kind of fear of, like, internet weirdness or this fear of this kind of, like, abstraction or kind of bizarre things Um, that the internet and video games have introduced, um, in like sort of mainstream culture and mainstream society. And I think it's why, I think it's why some of that stuff has been so dismissed and it's also why it's, uh, become a real, uh, uh, place where fringe, uh, elements grow, um, because it it kind of represents something that, um, is sort of against the traditional accept traditionally acceptable ideas of what a thing should or shouldn't be. I guess right. Um, and and I and I, that has manifested itself in both really interesting and really terrible ways. Um, but I, I like. I guess that's why I can't. I can't uh really divorce myself or or things that I've done from the internet because it it really is like I mean when I got involved with indie games um and uh just the internet in general like it felt like you know as a kid it felt kind of like the wild west or whatever like you're 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 going out and you're you're finding your own territory you're finding your own dream and like trying to make that and it it feels much less like that now mm-hmm. um, because it feels like everything is much more codified and you know like the the actual wild west like some people got really successful and a bunch of other people got fucked over right um but um i mean and and the the fact that i literally moved from ohio to california to right. get involved with stuff it's it's to the bay area specifically <laughs> yeah, you know yeah you're, uh, you're you're panning
1: for gold uh.
0: yeah exactly and i did not i did not get very much <laughs> um but um but i i don't know like what what outlets do we have otherwise and and that's kind of what i end up coming back to and and why i feel like i can't you know regardless of anything else like um traditional media might not really understand weird internet or and might not really understand games or whatever um but from what i've heard anyway like uh what ge- video game let's players are huge that's the biggest thing on youtube yeah um and um from what i understand like a game, game being a game developer is i've heard this i don't know if it's true is like the number one thing that kids now say that they want to do yeah like i've seen i've I'm. seen
1: that too it's it's like it's like astronaut used to be in the 60s and 70s or something
0: yeah well and yeah. And, and like, you know, it's like, like actor or comedian or, you know, there, there are a lot of like, um, uh, but I don't know, like that's just, that's a real, like, I mean, it's becoming a really important part of culture and society. And it's kind of sad that it's so controlled and mediated by some of these, like, uh, fringe elements. And there's so, um, it hasn't really found a way to sort of sustain itself in, in and create a conversation that isn't... Um, that it kind of exists outside of, um, you know, this, like, ultra-capitalist kind of uh, austerity-like uh, libertarian sort of thinking that dominates both tech and games, but... Um, I mean, that, I guess like that's why
1: yeah, th- that's ahead. why I I really encourage amateurs to be amateurs. You know, I I think there's something to be said for doing stuff on the side. Like my job, you know, my job for ten years almost was video game development, but the job part was always a job. It wasn't uh, it wasn't the passion projects, right? The passion projects were still those indie games I tried to make. On the side, um, and then when I was working as a web developer, I was doing creative web stuff on the side as well, but that wasn't my day job either. Now it kind of is my job, uh, uh, where my spouse and I uh, uh, have Field Train, which is our uh, our creative technology cooperative. So we're doing like bots and things like that. But but even then, I still have all my my work on the side, and I I just um, I think there's something. Fundamental changes when you start doing things explicitly for money, um, even if it's not at the bidding of someone else. But you're like, okay, I'm gonna do this, and the point of this is to, if it's popular enough, I'm gonna get some money, or yeah. you know, and and that just that that does change things a lot. And I and and you know, for some people, it's
0: it c- it kind of ruins everything. It
1: does kind of ruin everything. Uh, like, and when people ask me, you know, oh, I want to tell me, oh, I want to be a video game developer, I was like awesome how do you feel about hating video games for the rest of your life <laughs> and and if the answer if they're horrified then i'm like well maybe don't be a game developer because you're gonna hate video like it was really only the last two years after i had not been a game developer for three or four years uh that i started really enjoying games again <laughs> like yeah, this year especially has been a great year for me. Just really having a great time with games, and because partly because I don't make them anymore, but also I don't really partic- participate in the online discourse about it anymore either.
0: I mean, that's the thing that <laughs> that always infuriates me. I I've tried to dive into the discourse and always come up like feeling frustrated and disappointed, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm glad. That, I'm glad that I did. I'm glad that I tried, but it's yeah. It's been it's been incredibly frustrating. Like I I don't feel like I don't feel like I'm necessarily the greatest writer in the world or anything. Like I feel like there's some stuff that I've done that's written pretty well, but like to feel like I'm the only one talking about certain things or I'm one of like two or three people who's like at all trying to do this certain thing uh like talk about video games or talk about that culture in a particular way is so tremendously sad to me
1: well i think that's a failure of the internet too like i would be shocked if i bet there's other people out there doing it too but yeah you know they're
0: probably just it's, part of a different it's on
1: some private forum somewhere or whatever right like just yeah. some just some community that we are not connected to
0: yeah that's that's true i i've noticed it more and more like i uh, I wrote I wrote about you know video games and digital media and all that stuff from what I guess I understand now as being kind of a leftist perspective, but I didn't really understand how to connect a lot of the dots until I started reading more explicitly, like you know leftist, Marxist, whatever yeah. kind of uh, literature. And and now now I feel like oh wow I I really yeah. I really actually need to read more about this stuff because I but like. <laughs> I I at the at the time when I was writing I was like like it it seemed so unusual for someone to care about uh the issues that marginalized people face but also care about um but also prioritize like uh you know things there being an equal playing field and and things not being um things being fair and things being affo- you know like um economically like right. things being accessible and and those two things were at odds with each other yep. and like and like it seems so bizarre that they've you know that that's how things have been but um but yeah I don't know like uh I forgot what I was going to say
1: Oh that's okay. I I do have to wrap up and head out in a in a few minutes. Okay.
0: Uh, do you want to talk about uh just um what some of your favorite bots or other things that you've done? Are and and I can maybe put a link to them in the in the. Um,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, like favorite bots that anyone's made or just my stuff. <laughs> like. Well, both. Yeah. Um, I mean, favorite bots. Uh, one of my favorite bots ever is called Census Americans, uh, and it's a bot that goes. It's by uh, Jia Zhang and it goes through um, the U.S. Census records, and it pulls out. Data that is representative of individual people—it's like self-consistent and all that—and it just tweets a little story like, um, "I am retired. I, I am a I am a war veteran. I am disabled. I am divorced. I have been married twice." You know, like that's, um, and and it's just—it's very—it's very, it's very uh, poetic. I don't know. It's uh, it, it's very evocative, just using this very bland census data, uh, but it manages to pull some very um create some very evocative narratives in my head just with this very spare language. Um
0: Oh, what's the what's that hypercard thing that you worked on real quickly? Oh, yeah, we didn't yeah, get a yeah. chance to talk um, about that.
1: This is so this was uh so there was a there was a uh a, a an interactive novel, a hypercard based novel made for the Mac back in 90 I want to say 95 96 um called Uncle Buddy's Phantom Funhouse. And um uh, it's by John McDade, and it was this just incredible. Uh, I mean, you know, again for people who might not be familiar with HyperCard, if you are familiar with Twine, it's sort of similar to that. It's this just like hypertext, like novel sort of experience with a lot of a lot of images, also very heavily image based, and um, uh, and I was asked by Rutgers University to join a panel of artists who um, uh, got to reinterpret the work uh, because it was its twentieth anniversary and so um and so I went in, and uh of all the people who were on it, I was the one programmer, so I went in and actually got the source code from from John McDade himself and uh and went into HyperCard in an emulator and like looked at the source, what it was doing, and pulled out stuff that I thought was interesting. and I eventually managed to pull the there's a there's a tarot deck at the center of the whole thing, um, uh this weird tarot deck filled with poetry. And uh, and I and I made a Twitter bot out of it called uh, Phantom Funhouse on Twitter. It's just at Phantom Funhouse is the the handle, uh, and it's just a little window into one tiny part of what I feel like is one of the greatest novels novels I've ever read uh, in my life. Um, I eventually hope to to work with John to maybe bring the whole novel back to so that people can read it because i think it's a fantastic work of art but also hypercard is just not runnable on modern machines in in any way um so uh so yeah so that and that was just wonderful that was the like this experience where i just i i, I don't know like uh, a lot of uh, a fair number of people follow the bot now and i think it's because like uh, you know the 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 aesthetic of this hypercard thing was just it's just so in line with like what you see on Tumblr now or whatever, just feels fresh and it feels um, of the moment. Um, uh, I think partly because it was just so, you know, uh, ahead of its time when it when it came out. Um,
0: it's the that feels like the kind of thing. Um, like I, I, you know, people are always like. Uh, where, where's the like gravity's rainbow or you know yeah. the whatever of, of and and like it, it's it's in these communities it's it's in you know hypercard stuff it's in like a random doom mod it's in like you know it, it's just in random places on the internet yep. and yep. Th- that's what I've discovered for being on the internet like really great sort of transformative artworks like the, the number uh, the amount of them isn't necessarily like super high but they exist and they're out there and a lot of people don't know about them yeah.
1: It's, well, yeah, and I really hope we manage to excavate and bring to the public as many of them as possible.
0: <laughs> um, so, is there are just quickly um, any bots that any other bots that you did? I like um, one bot that I like is the glitch logos. That's right. Um, uh, d- Partly because on my website I have like glitched versions of like social media logos <laughs> as a link to my profile, just because I I like like messing up co- corporate logos. But that's one that I like.
1: Yeah, me- messing up corporate logos is great. Glitch logos is is good for that. It's one of my few very visual bots. Another visual bot that I have that people like is uh, called Reverse OCR. It's a uh, I take a character recognition, like a handwriting recognition uh, algorithm, and I just wiggle like I scribble with a simple drawing program until um, until it thinks it recognizes a letter and then I build words out of it and it just it just looks like a like a demented child's handwriting or something like an alien learning to write English uh, but not really quite understanding what a letter R is supposed to be Um mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I think reverse OCR is also is also one uh, uh, worth worth checking out too.
0: Cool. Um, so, is there anything else you wanted to mention or talk about before we go?
1: Uh, I just want to say fuck video games.
0: <laughs> that that's really become your your thing. <laughs> that's my catchphrase. That's my catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, great. Well, thanks for coming on. It was really great to talk to you. <laughs> uh, I've been talking to Darius Kazemi, bot maker, former video game person who now says fuck video games. I'll put a link to to everything or most things that you mentioned uh, in the description. And thanks again. Okay, thanks Liz. Okay. Bye.